Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 174, Tov versus Toxicity in the Church. Yes, hello, welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast where we talk about how the gospel is good news for everyone every day. I am your host, Lori Krieg, and I have alongside me Steve Odell, not Matt Krieg. He is back at home, but Steve, he is the most professional radio voice among us. Welcome. <laughs> uh, thank you, and hello. Hello. <laughs> Oh, guys, I cannot wait to talk about what we're going to talk about today with Scott McKnight. Yes, that's Scott McKnight. If you uh, study the New Testament at all, he's like the New Testament scholar guy. He's written 80 books, but he and his daughter, Laura Berenger, wrote a book called A Church Called Tove, which Tove is Hebrew word for good. And so we're going to talk about specifically how to avoid being a toxic church culture or ministry culture and and how can churches go from these massive places to all of a sudden scandal or ministries massive things that seem to be doing so much good in scandal accusation and and then it comes out these accusations are true and so how can we avoid that guys and what what are some good or tove ways what are how can we pursue being a good Tove, people of character. Oh, cannot wait for this conversation. But before we dive in, I just want to highlight, I love doing coaching. If you guys are looking for a counselor, that's not me. (laughs) But if you're on a six-month waiting list and you're looking for someone to sit with you and, like I keep saying, be with you in the trenches, just was meeting with someone right before this conversation today, and I just was like tearful, joyful to be able to meet with them and just look at Jesus together. So if you're looking for someone to be in the trenches with you, you can check out our options at lauriecreek.com slash shop. Guys, I'm so excited to welcome to the show today, Scott McKnight and Laura Beringer. I'm going to tell you a little bit about them and then officially welcome. You'll hear them. Uh, Scott McKnight, he's a New Testament scholar who's written widely on the historical Jesus and Christian spirituality. He's a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Lombard, Illinois, he earned a bachelor's degree from Cornerstone University. That's where we're recording this right now. Just that's why I say that. And I graduated from there. Uh, but he has a master's from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and a doctorate from the University of Nottingham. And he's written more than 80 books, including the popular The Jesus Creed, at which won an award from Christianity Today in 2004. And you can read more from Scott at Substack and his blog, Jesus Creed. Just Google him. You'll find it. Uh, And Laura Berenger, who is his daughter, she's an outspoken advocate for the wounded resistors of institutional abuse. What, what? I'm all about it. Laura is co-author of A Church Called Tove. And guys, this is the book that we're going to be talking about today. It is so good. I loved it. I was sad when it was done, uh, but it's called A Church Called Toe, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. And she previously co-authored the children's version of the Jesus Creed and wrote a teacher's guide to accompany it. She also written articles for the Jesus Creed blog, and she's a graduate of Wheaton and currently resides in Chicago suburbs with her husband, Mark, and three beagles. Guys, Laura, Scott, welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Lori. Good to be with you and good to be back at Cornerstone. Yeah, you're here. You're here. We're welcoming you guys. Oh, man. <laughs> we, I really, truly cannot wait to dive into this conversation, but let's uh, tiptoe into it by getting to know our audience and you guys better with the question of the week from last week. So we're going to start with you, Laura. Uh, if you could relive one day of your childhood again, I'm assuming it's probably your dad's going to be a part of it. What would it be? 
I would go back to my childhood days in England. We I we lived there for two years growing up and I am a teacher now. And I remember I have so many memories of my school days in England and being now being a teacher myself, I'm so impressed with what we were learning at a young age. So I would love to go back to being in those classrooms with those teachers and reliving moments of um, my primary grade years. Oh, I love it. Oh, Scott, how about you? Now, how far back do I have to go to uh, childhood? Do <laughs> um, so I get to include junior high? Oh, yeah, what? yeah. Is, 18 is and under. Grade 18 and under. Um, okay. If All right. Now, this is this really, um, you can pigeonhole me now. Sure. I wish I would have continued with Latin class in high school. I took it one year or one semester, and I should have continued on. Um, I really enjoyed the teacher, and she's in our area now, but um, I regret that I, I quit reading Latin. Mm, what I had if- to learn to pick it up on my own later. <laughs> How about that for a As crazy you do. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, I like it. I like it. All right, Steve, which audience response uh, resonated with you and why? Yeah, well, um, I liked what Heather said, um, and it's kind of like uh, what you said, Laura. Uh, Trip to London, hands down. And she went on to say, and then I would have taken the train to Paris like we were supposed to before we left. Apparently, it Uh sounds like something didn't quite go right there, but she she could have a do-over so they could make the Paris side trip. So I like that. I don't know why I like that. Maybe, what would you do, Steve? Well, I think for me, it isn't about doing something over except maybe sticking with something. When I was a kid, my summer days, like every single day of the summer, yeah. were spent uh, riding my bike to the campus of the college where my dad taught that had this gigantic pool. And so I would bike and swim and bike. Aww. And like I could have been like a triathlete if I had just like, you know. <laughs> could have been amazing. Done it more intentionally. But that was, my summer days were just a lot of fun. Just bliss. Yeah. Uh, that speaks uh, really similarly to what Stephanie said. She said, I think there are any number of summer days with my family. I'd relive going on walks together, playing in the backyard, picking berries in the mountains. The things we did in and of themselves weren't so spectacular, but the feelings of togetherness and good fun we had in nature are some of my warmest memories. I just love that summer is bliss. And I have 11 brothers and sisters and this isn't a summer memory, it's a Christmas memory, but we went from Michigan, where we grew up, uh, to Florida. And some people who um, had owned a huge yacht and a huge home in Florida let us, 12 kids, crash their home at Christmas Whoa. and their yacht. So there were like kids everywhere. The yacht we're sleeping in <laughs> at Christmas. And just that feeling of together chaos was my favorite. And so I'd like to redo that day in warmth in Florida. All right, guys, we are going to shift into asking the set of questions that we ask every guest for the last bunch of episodes uh, from the beginning. And it's this. If the gospel is I'm more loved than I imagine, yet more sinful than I believe. When was the gospel first good news for you, Laura? And how is it still today? You know, that's an interesting question. My dad actually wrote a book on conversion stories, and I don't have I, I realize now that it's it's okay, but I don't have 
a moment like right. a lot of people do. I kind of grew into the faith that was always part of my life. So for me, it's a series of stories, a series of gentle nods of the soul in his words mm-hmm. um, that you know started in primary school. I have moments in high school, moments in college when my faith really became mine. Mm, I love that. How do you still need the good news today, 2021? And, you know, this story, the book that we wrote about Tove, um, this was really a work of faith for me, um, realizing that God is in the wounded, that he's with the wounded, he's with the resistors. And I found that, sadly, churches silencing victims um, was so discouraging and so disorienting. But what I found through the journey was that that is not God, that God is truth. And God um, is, like I said, is with the wounded and is with the heart of the wounded resistor. Mm, That's so good. Scott, uh, when was the gospel first good news for you? And how do you still need it today? Okay, now you've asked the wrong person the question because I've written a book on the gospel. Uh-oh. And um, I think the gospel is about Jesus. It is about telling people about Jesus and coming to terms with who he is. And I would say that I grew up with, uh, in a, uh, although I responded to the gospel as a child, and then as a teenager, uh, especially, it became fully integrated in my life. I think that uh, the gospel of manipulation uh, loses people and, in a sense, blocks the fuller formation that can come from the gospel of knowing who Jesus is. What would you say is the gospel of manipulation? Well, it is when uh, we're just trying to get people to admit that they're sinful. Mm and find Jesus as Savior. This is only part of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel's history. He is the King. He is the Lord. And we surrender to him. And salvation is a uh, is the blessing of the gospel. But the gospel itself is to tell the story about Jesus. And the, what I was getting at is that I think I was in seminary before I had Um, a theology and a class that focused so much on who Jesus was, rather than, say, a plan of salvation of theological propositions, it became a person. And at that point, the gospel is about the goodness of God. God is tov, because God is himself tov, and therefore it, we get incorporated into that kind of gospel, and it it just fills us with tove and goodness, and we want to be that kind of person in the world because that's the way Jesus was. So mm. how's that for an answer? It's killer. <laughs> it's killer, and I like it when people push Am back. Am I in trouble now? <laughs> no, I love it when people push back on our question because it really helps to to expand on it. Can you help us understand how you still need this good news about Jesus today? Every day, all day long, we need Jesus. We need who he is as a paradigm, 
as a savior, as a Lord, um, as the sovereign king of all the world. We need him because of political nastiness in our world. We need him because of social media uh, violence. We need him because of abuse in this world. We need him because we need, uh, we need goodness in our life. We need redemption in our life. We need transformation in our life. So every day uh, I'm conscious of the need uh, to keep my, my gaze upon Jesus, to quote the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. So good. Oh, so good. All right, Scott, I'm going to circle back to you right now. So again, I've alluded to loving this book. My husband, Matt, is a therapist, and I, I do coaching with people. But increasingly, we just have people coming to us who have gone through um, what you speak of here, of, of church abuse and spiritual abuse and just toxic uh, Christian culture, which we'll use the word Christian loosely. Um but so why why did you choose to write about this guy? You're a New Testament scholar, and here you go talking about church abuse. Why? Because I have a daughter who was a pest. Who's a pest? <laughs> I, who was a pest about this? She I was leave working alone. on some kind of writing project, mm -hmm. and Laura just became convinced that we need to talk more about the Willow Creek story. Mm -hmm. So I began to think about it. And then I began to jot down ideas. And then I was reading things that matched it. And eventually I drew up a, uh, maybe a couple thousand word um, draft of things that I thought. And Laura and her husband, Mark, just kept asking me. Chris and I kept talking about it. Mm. And before long, I had a blog post that uh, went viral um, that put me on the map. All of a sudden, newspaper people were asking me questions. Um, and so that grew eventually into this book. But it was, uh, Laurie, this is sort of peculiar, and I have to tell it every time I tell the story. I was reading about how the German pastors responded to the Holocaust after World War II yeah. and how dishonest they were about their complicity. When I began to notice patterns between how those pastors responded and how pastors respond in our culture when allegations are leveled against them and how churches surround and sustain and retain and protect their pastors with complicity in false narratives. Mm -hmm. And so the book really began in that, in that uh, chapter on false narratives. And then um, it was very important to me that the book not be uh, an expose of churches but that it be redemptive. So we began to develop categories that we thought could be useful for churches to help prevent toxicity. And that's where we came up with the idea of Tove, goodness, and the seven components of Tove. Laura, I want to jump to you next, but real quick, Scott, it's a church called Tove. You guys have said it a few times now. Just what is Tove? T-O-V. Tove is the Hebrew word for goodness. And here's, okay. First of all, it's a catchy word. And I found out when I was teaching a class that all my students started using the word. And I thought, oh, this word kind of sticks. <laughs> we had to convince the publisher. We had to convince the publisher of a Hebrew word in the title. But it works because everybody calls it Tove. But I blogged about it. And I was stunned by the number of people who wrote me letters 
personal text messages, everything about how much they like that word. And one of the reasons is, is because in Protestant evangelicalism, we have memorized, there is none good, no, not one in the King James Version. But we don't turn around and then memorize the fact that through the Spirit, we are to be marked by goodness. Mm. And then so I studied tov, uh, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, which occurs all over the place as a master category of what is God expects of his people. And I found it so prevalent also in the New Testament. So tov became the word we landed on as the redemptive dimension of churches that can prevent them from toxicity. Mm. Yep. Okay, Laura, let's jump to you. So, you know, your dad, Scott, has already alluded to, he said Willow Creek. You guys name names in this book. And I, it isn't an expose, but it's not not honest about, okay, here's what happened. Here's, uh, here's what happened, and here's how we can avoid that. The first half is what, and the second half is here's how we can redeem. Why, why was it okay with you biblically and just, you know, ethically in your own heart to name names? Like, why was that necessary? And why is that okay biblically? We never considered not naming names. Um, it was important to the women that their stories be told. And leaving out the names leaves out the truth. Mm. So for us, it was really never a question um, we've been asked since the book came out, why did you name names? And I can understand the question. And my dad can talk a little bit more about why we believe that it's biblical to name them. But the short answer and the most honest answer is that it was important to the women that their stories be told, mm -hmm. that the abusers have had their glory, their time in the spotlight, and not that the women wanted their names in the spotlight, they didn't. But leaving out the names, for me, waters down the story that it leaves a reader wondering, well, who are they talking about? They're giving some details, but not all of it. And it it leaves a more lasting impression um, from an author's point of view to name the names because it it tells all of the truth of the story. It doesn't fall short of the truth. Mm. All right. So then we'll jump to you, Scott. Why is it biblically, you know, okay? You know, if people are having a panic attack right now. And even as I was reading, I was like, I guess this is okay. And you guys talk about it in the book. Uh, and I'm with you. Let's advocate for women, but just help us if we're a little like, ah. Are we supposed to do this in this gossip or slander or Scott? How did you land biblically? Yeah. Okay. First of all, the stories that we tell are all in public. Mm -hmm. There's nothing other than Carrie Lattice's story, who um, is a friend of ours, who also told us her story, gave us permission, cleared it with all the appropriate people. Um, other than that, all these stories are in public. So this is not... This is not an expose of things unknown. Mm. Okay, that, that's one. The second thing is this. What do you know about David, Lori? You know that David was a pretty good guy and he had a lot of stupid decisions. Yeah. What do you know about Solomon? He had a thousand wives. Okay. Uh, what do you know about Peter and Paul getting into an argument? What do you know about the apostles in the Gospels, Mark never says one thing nice about the 12 apostles of Jesus. 
They followed him. But other than that, they're doing foolish things, and Jesus rebukes them. So it is, what do we know about Abraham? You know, he tried to give his wife away twice to save his skin. Uh, There is a a refreshing uh, honesty about biblical stories that we uh, sometimes are afraid of because we're afraid of the power of grace and forgiveness and God's goodness. Now, the other thing is this. I'm a professor of seminary students and pastors. Pastors read my books, and I do a lot of things with pastors. They need this. Yep. I've had a num- numerous pastors say to me, um, I just don't want to appear in the pages of a book like this someday. Ooh, snap. So this becomes a warning to people who are leaders that they could be an expose in their local newspaper someday. Mm-hmm. Just read one this morning mm-hmm. about some toxic situation of abuse in a church. So there's a reason for this. There wasn't any fun in it. There wasn't any delight. Um, I didn't feel like we were being prophetic, though people have said that we are. Uh, To me, this was holding the truth of Scripture and the truth of God up against some behaviors that need to be said for what they are so that we can strive for what we're supposed to be. I want to say one word about Carrie Lattiser too. It was important to us to correct the narrative that had been told about that by Willow Creek about her. And the truth of that story had not been told. So like my dad said, it was not fun to write. It's painful to read. We also felt like the story needs to be told. The truth needs to be told. As of right now, there's many people that believe the narrative that Willow spun about her, and that's not right. It's just not right to let the story end that way without the truth of her, what really happened to her, be told. Mm. So as I was reading, I was thinking, um, like what you're saying, Scott, these pastors you know, they're like, I don't want to be in this book. I don't want to be in the newspaper. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, I was starting to think, okay, because you, you talk about early warning signs of a toxic culture. And so for pastors listening, for leaders listening, for parishioners listening, uh, how can we spot early warning signs, maybe in our own church, in our own heart, or the church we're going to, or our ministries as well, this isn't just exclusive to churches, of a toxic culture. What are one or two signs that we may be going toxic? Okay. I would, I would want to say, are are you asking me? Yeah. Scott, let's start with you. Yep. Okay. Okay. Um, I would say the, we need to be aware of warning signs that might not indicate a toxic culture yet, but it could indicate that it it will get there. Mm. The, uh, I I like to put it this way. Who, who, are we talking about when we leave the church? Hmm. Are we talking about God? Are we talking about Jesus? Are we talking about the spirit? Are we talking about the fellowship of the saints and worship? Or are we talking about how great the pastor was, how great the church was? When those are com- when that's the commentary in the car on the way home, we're, we're, in, we're on the verge of trouble. Is the pastor seen as a hero? Is the pastor a celebrity? 
is the pastor treated well beyond respect uh, to the point that honor and respect become worship and adoration? Does it become, uh, and then this is even a bigger sign, are people afraid of the pastor? Mm. Are the people inside the curtain afraid of the pastor? And a lot of times, Lori, we will not know what goes on behind closed doors. And we will assume that the persona on the platform is the person in the office, and they're not. How close is the persona to the person? Are we seeing fear? Are, are we seeing power abuse? Are we seeing authoritarianism? This is what I think we have to start watching for to see if the, if the culture is healthy. Here's, a, here's another one. How, many, how big a turnover is there in the offices? And do we know why people are leaving? And is everybody leaving for the same reason? You know, the Lord has called them somewhere else. You know, this usually in churches means we fired them and we don't want anybody to know that because we don't want the story told. And I would, if, I, if I'm in a church today, I'm asking if there are NDAs being signed. Mm. If there are NDAs being signed, I'm gone or I'm protesting uh, because NDAs are a sign of toxicity and sickness. Mm. Anything you'd add, Laura? Is there an inner circle? Is there an inner circle that is impenetrable that surrounds the charismatic leader? Is it a circle that people want to get into and they cannot? Mm. Is it a circle that prohibits the pastor from being known to the congregation. Can you talk for a hot second on power and the brain? That was just really fascinating to me because in, you know, you talk about narcissism, you talk about power, you talk about fear and just literally the role power has on the brain on these could be uh, pastors wrestling with narcissism and this celebrity power in their brain. What's it do to the brain? Hey, what does hot second mean? <laughs> That's a good one. That's a different a hot conversation. Second. That's pretty fast. <laughs> it is very fast. That's right. Okay. Okay. All right. So um, the brain, um, when intoxicated with power, becomes incapable of sympathy and empathy and kindness and grace and forgiveness and telling the truth and being like Christ. Brains get rewired when they become intoxicated with power. And this is, uh, this is some pretty serious research that is going on in brain studies. And Chris, my wife, uh, has done some work. I mean, some re quite a bit of reading about brains and what happens under certain uh, conditions. But I was, I was stunned on what power does to a brain. So when pastors are talking about authority, the authority of the pastor, that's the one word that I think should be banned from pastoral theology today. Mm -hmm. um, when pastors are talking about pastoral authority, when they're claiming their authority, you know, I, I say this all the time about marriage. When, we, when complementarians get intoxicated with who's in charge in a marriage, we got problems. Uh, this is not the way 
loving people relate to one another. Uh, they don't talk about authority. They are mutually interpenetrating one another in a way that allows for consensus and intimacy and flexibility. So to me, authority um, and power begin to infiltrate the brain and make us less capable of doing the sorts of things that Jesus is calling us to do. And they instead, it causes us to protect ourselves, our power, and to create self-grandiosity. Mm. Laura, I think this was something that you talked about specifically in the book, but you know, as an advocate for the abused, why would you not advocate for the abused having to go, especially one-on-one, -on -one, to their abusers? Yeah, I mean, everything that I learned about this biblically, I actually learned from my dad. So he can probably answer more eloquently than I, but it never settled well in my soul. The Willow Creek is a personal story for us. So when I when I heard that some of these women bravely sat with Bill Hybels and told him, confronted him, told him to stop. Or when our friend, Carrie Latticer, was made to sit with him one-on-one, -on -one, it just was, at, was asked to sit with him one-on-one. -on -one. It didn't settle well. It didn't feel right in my soul. Mm. I didn't know. I don't have all the biblical knowledge mm -hmm. that my dad has, and mm -hmm. he can explain why. Mm -hmm. That's really not what the Bible is asking. I just, I felt like Willow Creek was using Matthew 18 to silence the truth. Mm. And again, I didn't have the biblical knowledge at the time. I understand now through learning from my dad and through reading and researching for a few years, I understand it now. I just knew that something was off. It didn't feel right in my soul that a young woman my age would be made to sit with a powerful pastor. The intimidation alone is cause for alarm and fear. Dad, do you want to speak to the biblical part of that? Well, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the point of Matthew 18 is about interpersonal conflict, let's just say, uh, some kind of offense. When we're talking about sexual abuse, we are not talking about interpersonal conflict. Mm -hmm. We're talking about power, we're talking about deep sin. We're talking about a crime. And um, that's so that this is one thing. I think we need to pay attention to this. Mm. Uh, and I know people who really fight for Matthew 18. And I would defend the value of Matthew 18 in interpersonal conflict. However, most of the people that I know who even specialize in Matthew 18 type situations will say there are many times when the person should never go alone. There should always be one or two with them as advocates. Okay, so they've already recognized the problem with it. The other thing, Lori, that really concerns me is who is at an advantage if we appeal to Matthew 18? And I'm not kidding you. I have almost never seen Matthew 18 being to the advantage of a victim. It is always to the advantage of the pastor, the institution, the church, the business. They, they are appealing to that verse because they 
get to have a control of the situation. I want to meet with that person one-on-one. We can deal with this one-on-one. That is almost always the language of power and authority that will bring advantage to the person in power. Rarely is it the language of empathy, sympathy, compassion, and um, let's say justice and fairness. Okay, so um, your book, First Half, is focused on, all right, here's some of the toxic signs. And again, that was really helpful to read. And for me to just even have categories, have words, have names, have things to look for as I we care and love others and as we engage the world as Christ followers ourselves. Second half, it's not like you abandon these examples, but you engage beautifully what a Tove church looks like. Scott, we'll start with you, but what are some signs of a good or Tove church? Now, okay, I, we have to give credit to our editor who uh, <laughs> pushed us to move more of the, the junk stuff, the toxic stuff up front so that the book has more of a redemptive feel to it. It does. Rather than, rather than keeping it a little bit more balanced. And uh, as a professor... I'm quite willing to have two things going on at once, maybe three or four. Uh, so uh, we give credit to our editor, Dave. We found, all right, here's what happened. We found characteristics of toxic church cultures. And I matched those with Tove culture, uh, with what we call the Tove culture. And frankly, you can call it a loving culture, a godly culture. I mean, we can... We can use different synthetic terms, but we found in a toxic culture, narcissism and fear and institution creep and false narratives and loyalty and celebrity and leaders. Um, and I thought, what, what are the uh, more biblical side of these things? What, if, if we don't have narcissism, what do we have? Well, uh, we came up with these seven characteristics. We talked about them with one another we probably had 10 or 11 at one time and uh, tried to blend them into the right categories. We have empathy, grace, which is a word I think that is not understood as well as it should be. People first. This, this is a big one to me. Uh, telling the truth. Justice in the sense of doing the right thing at the right time, not too late. Service serving one another, and ultimately they come to completion in being like Christ or Christ-likeness, or my favorite term, Christoformity. Mm -hmm. So those are the characteristics, empathy, grace, people first, truth, justice, service, and Christ-likeness. All right. Now, Laura, which one of those is like the most refreshing to you that you're like, that's, that's the one that like speaks the most to your soul when you're looking for a church now? Truth. Yeah. Why is that? Yeah. You know, I was, and again, I don't mean to keep, I'm not trying to pick on Willow Creek, but mm -hmm. it was a, it was a, it was personal. And I personally felt betrayed by the leadership at Willow Creek and what went down mm -hmm. with how they treated the women. And for me, it's, it's refreshing and it's biblical and it's Tove to tell the truth. I found a story in our research that um, about, have you heard of Robert Cunningham Tate's Creek Church in Kentucky? 
Are you familiar with that story? I mean, if you read, wrote about it, I read it. Yeah, okay. it's in the book. Okay. Yeah, I wrote about it in, in our book. But I became emotional, actually, when I was reading the story because it was it was a story about a sexual abuse allegations and the, the way that the pastor responded was Tove. He said, we are going to open up our books. We are going to allow, we're going to hire an outside um, investigator. We're not going to hide anything from him. He apologized to the church. He apologized to the victims. He apologized to the entire community of Lexington that this would have happened within a church that he wasn't even leading at the time. And I could keep going on. I don't need to. You can read more about it in Christianity Today or we posted it on our website. But um, it was I, I felt emotional by the story because I felt if if Willow Creek could have only responded the way that this pastor, Robert Cunningham, Tate's Creek Church responded, how differently the story could have gone. And dad, you said this one time and it's always stuck with me. If Willow Creek, if Bill Hybels would have apologized, we truly felt like if the truth had been told, this the church would have erupted in grace for him. They were we were waiting to forgive. Just tell the truth. And that's what that's what Tate's Creek and Robert Cunningham represent to me is People have said, is there any hope? And I've said, look at this story. Yes, there is a better way. And it's been done. Why don't we do that, Scott? Why are we so quick to not go to Tove? Um, I thought you were going to say and not go to telling the truth. And um, telling the truth. I'll say both. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Okay. Uh, the answer is St. Augustine. <laughs> mm. All right. The Augustine emphasized in, in the Christian tradition, the intractable human propensity not to tell the truth about itself. Mm. The irony, of course, is that Bill Hybels and some of these other pastors have spent their life trying to convince sinners to admit their sinfulness with God. And when they were confronted with their own sinfulness, which is, okay, let's just say it this way. It's okay. This is what we have to do as humans, uh, is to confess our sin. When they were confronted with that very thing, they refused to admit it. And the only path toward grace and forgiveness in the presence of God is to come before God as we really are. And this, um, this I am thoroughly convinced that had, had Bill Hybels admitted uh, the truth had some of these other pastors say C.J. Mahaney, uh, some of these other names, James McDonald that we name in the book. Had they told the truth, they would have been forgiven. Yeah. These churches are ready to forgive their leaders if their leaders will tell the truth. There's a desire for authenticity. You know, we all read the Bible and we know the story of David and David was sinful and we know that story, and that's okay because he was forgiven by God. He confessed his sin. We know the story of Peter admitting that he was wrong and being reconciled with Jesus. We know these stories are a part of the Christian tradition. So we're ready to offer forgiveness to those 
who are willing to turn from their sin and admit what's going on. So I love how in the book you have like ex- you have example laments and confessions that, you know, Willow Creek could have done. God, we confess we didn't believe and you name who they didn't believe these different women and we repent like and it's it's repetitive how you guys go through each one. And I found myself being like, OK, OK. But then I was like, actually, this is cleansing even for my own soul as I'm reading this. Like, God, we're sorry. We repent. It's so my dad. I grew up hearing my dad say three hardest words in the English language are I was wrong. And so he, that's what we had to say to each other as siblings in that yacht as we did things. Anyway, whatever, just craziness. But I guess I'm just asking, you know, I feel a cleansing as even we're talking more about Tove and telling the truth. And as I'm reflecting on these laments, but I'll just go to you, Laura, and then to you, Scott, what is the proper way forward? We're so broken. You know, there's more headlines with Ravi Zacharias, et cetera. Like what is the proper next step? If we are a pastor or leader listening and we're like, oh my word, how can I make sure that we are a Tove church? What would you say, Laura? What's the proper way forward? Be tov, be tov yourself. There's, in my opinion, there's not, there's not a process. There's not a procedure. There's not, there's not a system to put in place that's going to protect. It's about the character of the individual. It's about being tov yourself. It's about being a person who is empathetic. It's about being a person who offers grace, who puts people first. A person who is Tove themselves will lead others into Tove. Scott, what would you add? You know, yeah. Um, I think that I, I, you know, I wrote down the word character uh, uh, before Laura said it. So to me, uh, character is something we have to start working at and start measuring in our churches, Christ-likeness, this is harder to measure, and stop measuring um, what is so typically now seen as success, and that is how many people are coming to our church and how much money is being given and how big our building is and how how much bigger our church is than the church across the street or down the, down the street. We're measuring the wrong things when we're measuring uh, numbers. We need to focus as a Christian community on character. Um, We don't hear Jesus talking about numbers. Uh, Paul, uh, the book of Acts mentions a number of people who converted uh, one time. But by and large, uh, numbers do not matter. Character matters. And um, even this, Lori, I've been thinking about this lately in the pastoral epistles. We have a list of qualifications for elders, et cetera. Right. Bishops, whatever you want to, however you want to translate the terms. We have become obsessed with these as sort of a list, a checklist. And I, I tell my students, you know, these are manifestations of character. These are manifestations of giftedness. We need to think about character and giftedness and not see, oh, I, I match all the lists. You can match all that and be a pain in the butt. Okay, that's yeah. that's, that's Baptist language for you know what. <laughs> Similar to hot um, second, pain in butt, same category. That's right. That's right. The uh, the Lutherans would have stronger terms. They're they're uh, they're more 
for, they're more filled with grace, I guess, <laughs> ready to be forgiven. But we uh, we need to measure character, mm. and we need to focus on this. And we need when we call a pastor, when we call leaders in our church, we don't ask, will they be able to bring in the certain? Are they charismatic and able to bring a lot of people to church so we can get a lot of money in the offering plate and be able to afford our budget? We need to ask, will this person lead us more in Christ-likeness or not? Mm. That, that's what I think we need to ask. Ah, it's I think so we've gotten good. so many things messed up. Yeah. God forgive us and God help us. We so need you. And increasingly so. It's, this has got to be the real deal now. <laughs> it had to be for all these thousands of years, but it's got to be now. Uh, Scott, Laura, thank you so much for this book. Thank you for your time and pieces of your story and uh, your wisdom that you're sharing with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Lori. It was good to talk with you. All right, guys, please go check this book out. Even if you're uncomfortable with some of these naming names, I mean, that was pretty convicting. We knew all about Abraham, David, uh, Solomon. It's funny, even in the book, he's like, let's not even get into Solomon. He has so many issues. Uh, but I would really encourage you, if you are a church leader or part of a church at any level, um, just to be able to know, okay, what's going on? How can we get healthy? It's, it's never too late. We're never too far gone. You know, if I think about, you know, issues, we referred to Ravi Zacharias. I just grieve. I wish he had repented. Uh, at the end there, you were never too far gone. So guys, go check this out. A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture. And you can find more at churchcalledtove.com for more podcasts and resources there. Uh, we do have a question of the week for next week. And this came out of a little, I won't say fight, but whatever. Tiff, taff, tiff, tiff, is that a word? Tiff, tove. Tove. Either way. <laughs> uh, between Matt and I, I was loading the dishwasher and he's like, you're doing it wrong. And I go, is there a right way, Matt, to load a dishwasher? And he goes, yes, there is. There's manufacturer, you know, resources. And so that's what I'm asking y'all. Is there a right and wrong way to load the dishwasher? And let the fights ensue. But stay tove. Be nice. Be kind. Be generous and empathetic. But I'm just curious. If you guys are like, eh, whatever. Or is there like, no, there's right and wrong. What do you say, Steve? Right and wrong? Oh, am I going to answer this yeah, right now? Yeah, I want to know right now. Well, the way I load my dishwasher is I feed them because they're my teenage sons. <laughs> so You don't have a dishwasher? No. <gasps> okay, not, well. Not the mechanical kind. Wow, just your, the old arms. That's right. Elbow grease. Elbow <laughs> grease. Oh, man. Hey, guys, thank you again to Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger for your courage. I know it is a challenge to put a book out there that is like, and we're calling y'all to truth. Um... Thank you again. But for all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast, guys, we're going to see you next week. <laughs>